question as we get uh, started here. Have you ever been stuck on a team with the worst player ever? Anybody ever been on, had that happen? You're stuck on the team with the worst player ever? It's, it's frustrating, right? Has anybody ever been the one that's the worst player on a team that everybody else is stuck with? That's a few more of us. <laughs> I, I think I've, I've felt that role far more often than I've been on the other side of it. Um, man, it's frustrating, right? Especially if you're anybody in here competitive, just admit it. Who in here is like just inherently, like no matter what, you want to win. Like there is no, let's just have fun. Anybody have a hard time turning that off? Some people are just poking. Like, yeah. I, I can struggle there. That can be, a, it can be hard, right? Especially if I'm in the zone and I want to win. And, uh, and then if you're, you're with somebody who, who, who has a hard time with this, you're the competitive person that's okay at something and you get somebody on your team that's not good and also doesn't care that they're not good. Anybody have that happen? That's so fun, isn't it? You're like, would you try? Move, do something, right? Y'all, it's, yeah, Ashley, uh, she tells me I have to turn that off <laughs> when, I, when we're playing. I, I take that back. She's more competitive than I am. She's not here today, so I can say that. Um, she's home with Crockett. He's not feeling well. So uh, she's, she's probably listening right now. And she's going to send me a text, but my phone's not up here, Ashley, so I can't get it. Um, so, uh, but yes, we can we have that to happen, right? Where you're either the worst person or you're playing with somebody that's really bad at something. It can be frustrating. You can get so aggravated. It's very easy to let your emotions get the best of you. I have a question that, that this might be an odd transition, but I, I just, this is the way I was thinking through this. How does Christ feel about that person that you so can't stand in the moment? So that person that you're like, man, I wish they would just go and trip and break their ankle so I could get somebody else. You never thought that I did. How does Christ feel about that person? That person that I wish was just not even here. Christ dearly loves them. And that's hard for us, right? Who in here has somebody that you have a hard time liking? That should be everybody, okay, if we're going to be honest, right? There's, there's people you have a hard time liking. You're sitting next to some of them, right? Oh, <laughs> I got too personal. We have people that are hard to like. How does Christ feel about that person that you have a very hard time liking? He dearly loves them. That has to change things for us, right? So we're going to get an answer to how Christ feels about people that we struggle with in the story of Judas. So we're going to be talking, we're doing a character study today that I, I don't know if you've ever been through this before with this one, because a lot of times we skip Judas, right? We just kind of want to hit on the 11 and we talked about the 11 last week, right? It's not like they are a whole, a whole bunch to look at, right? But this week we're going to focus specifically on Judas's story. Because I think a lot of times what we do is he's a person that's very easy to just hate, isn't he? We can just hate him. We feel so justified in feeling like, oh, yes, he's the worst. We hate Judas. We hate him. We read his name. We're like, oh, but that was Judas. We don't like him. And I think we need to stop and pause and maybe back up and ask a question of what did Christ feel towards Judas? And I think we'll see it in some of the stories. So if you want to turn with me to Acts chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 15. So uh, I had uh, some encouragement from uh, my friend Amy Williams <laughs> last week. She said she was trying to write down references as I was going through references for all the, uh, the 11. And she was like, I just quit writing because I couldn't keep up with how many things you're bringing out there. So uh, this week, we're going to try to get the, the references put up here for you guys to, to write those down as I go through them. So uh, I, we will try our best because I, I gave this to Stephen last minute, but he's, he's giving me thumbs up. So I think he says he's ready. So we'll, we'll go with this. So I'm going to read uh, verse 15 real quickly of Acts chapter 1. 
In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of persons was uh, in all about 120, and said, but let's pause there for a second. Those days, so you remember, uh, just backtracking a little bit, just remembering the background of the book of Acts and where we're at. That's Jesus has ascended, the, the apostles, the 11, and all their people go back. And first they're standing there waiting and they're trying to figure out what the, when the nation of Israel is going to be in power. And Jesus is like, what is wrong with you? And so they move forward and they're waiting for the power of the Holy Spirit to come. They're going to be witnesses. And so they're waiting well. They're praying. They're staying together. They're encouraging one another. And we get to see Jesus' brothers finally start uh, come to be a part of this because they believe in him. And uh, so they're a part of this. And these, uh, all these people are there waiting well. The Holy Spirit uh, promised and coming. Um, and remember, these are the 11 people we never would have picked, right? We walked through the reasons that none of us would have picked these guys, and yet they're the ones that Jesus picked. It says, in those days, uh, the company of persons was in all about 120 people. Here's what's interesting about that. During Jesus's earthly ministry, how many people did he reach? Thousands, right? Uh, how many people did he feed in the miracle of bread and fish? Over 10,000. We're talking probably close to 20,000 people because they numbered 5,000 men. If you're counting families in here, you could, you could easily reach 20,000 people that were miraculously fed after they'd been taught by Jesus. You had people following him everywhere. They would go and line the shore. They'd follow him around. They did everything just to hear him teach. But at the end of it, at the end of the time, after he's died and resurrected and talked through the cost of discipleship, out of those thousands, there's 120 left. You know what? I think most of us would have struggled with that fact. Who in here having a church that was uh, in the 20 to 30,000 range, and then within a few short weeks, it gets down to 120, who would call that a success? Who in here wants to say that Jesus failed? Maybe we have the wrong metric system for what success is. Does that make sense? You see, Jesus, though he did nothing wrong in his ministry, people loved hearing what he had to say when it was the good stuff. But when he said the things that were difficult to hear, they abandoned ship, right? They didn't stick through the parts that were hard where Jesus said, hey, following me means you're going to have to love me more than your wife, your mother, your brother, your sister, and your children because it might even cost your relationship with your family to follow me well. He had some people say, hey, I'm going to follow you, but first let me go bury my, my parent. What did Jesus say to that guy? Let the dead bury the dead. Come and follow me. You see, Jesus had some hard things to say. When people came thinking they were good people, he would say, hey, you think that the adulterers are bad, but you've lusted, so you're an adulterer as well. You think the murderers are bad, but you hate people. You are a murderer as well. People did not like all the things that Jesus said, so they abandoned. And at the end of it, there was 120 people. I think by metrics that most churches use, we would have called that a failure. Wouldn't we? By most, by any church saying anything, just look at it, say, we would say he failed. He had access to thousands and he lost almost all of them and there was 120 left. Did Christ's mission fail? No. I love this. Uh, I was at a conference one time and uh, a guy named Francis Chan was speaking. I don't know if you've ever uh, listened to him, heard his stuff, but he, he's got some very amazing things he's written and, and uh, spoken on. But one of the things that he said, I'll never forget this. 
He was talking about changes that were coming to his church. They were changing a lot of things because of his conviction over some things. And one of the things he said was, you know, I think if Jesus were alive today and were pastoring a church, my church would be bigger. Just let that sink in. What he was saying was because of the production value that he was doing, because of what they were offering, he would have more people attending his church than Jesus would because his was easier to be at. And that was a convicting statement for me to hear because I was wondering, am I teaching all the words of Christ or only the things that people want to hear? Because if I only teach what people want to hear, I am failing as a pastor. If we go through the areas that are difficult to study, difficult to hear, things that are not comfortable, things that we might even hate listening to, that sounds a lot more like what Christ's ministry was, doesn't it? Does that mean that it's easy for me? No. I promise you, there are areas that I have to teach that I've got. You guys walk through it with me in 1 Corinthians. There's stuff that was, you saw me just sweating and red-faced on stage just thinking, oh, I don't want to do this at all. But that's part of what ministry is supposed to be is we have to honor all the word of God. We have to lift it all high enough to say this is worth our study. So then uh, Peter stands up and he says, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. So we're going to read some of these scriptures. First of all, in Psalm 41, 9. It says, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. So that is a reference. That's a prophecy about Judas and uh, uh, Jesus. And we can see it in John 13, 18. In Zechariah eleven twelve through 13, it says, then I said to them, if it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out as, uh, as my wages, 30 pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter. The lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. So again, this is a prophecy of, again, looking ahead to how Judas was going to handle this money. Uh, he says that uh, Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. We find this in John thirteen eighteen through 30. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. We just read that. I am telling you this now before it takes place. And when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified. Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast. Or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. 
Matthew 26, 14 through 16 says, Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. You see, Judas, in watching Jesus, walking through ministry, remember, he was with Jesus beginning to end, right? He saw what Jesus was doing. But I think that what Judas has done, this is my um, perception of this. I think that Judas had realized and thought, I've tied my, my cart to a dying horse. Because Jesus kept talking about how he was going to go and he was going to be destroyed and he was going to be, uh, he, he was going to, he was going to die, right? Jesus was very clear about that with his disciples. This was going to happen. And with Judas, that was not the ending he wanted to be a part of. He didn't want to be a part of this thing. I think he was pursuing something different than what Christ was offering. He wanted to create his own God with his own religion, right? I think Judas probably would have been one of the ones that dearly wanted the nation of Israel restored to power. But for whatever reasons that Judas walked through, because we don't get to have a ton of insight into this, he decided that he no longer could support Jesus. And so he was going to betray him, and he does. Matthew 26, 47 through 50 says, While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great, crowd, uh, a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus and said, at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on him, and, uh, on Jesus, and seized him. So the way that Judas betrays Jesus after walking through all this ministry with him, after being a part of all these things, which we're going to see the things he was a part of in a minute. After walking through all of this with Jesus, he's told he's going to betray Jesus. He is already, is already in his heart. He leaves, goes up to the priest. And he's like, hey, if I give you this guy that you hate so much, what am I going to get? They said he's going to get 30 pieces of silver. So he's, he signs the bargain. And the way that he turns him in is with a greeting that you would give someone you love. He walks up to him and says, uh, says, greetings, Rabbi. Greeting him as a friend. Kisses him. And then Jesus just says, again, the wording here, friend, do what you came to do. What are Jesus' feelings towards Judas at that very moment? I think broken hearted. Now, Jesus knew the prophecies. He knew this would happen. This was definitely, this was, this was there. There was no escaping this. That doesn't, and we're going to get into this. This doesn't mean that Judas didn't have his choices or wasn't responsible for them. And I think Jesus was brokenhearted over seeing somebody who had spent three years with him in ministry betray him for money. Betray him because he wasn't getting what he wanted out of the ministry. Acts continues and says, for he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in the ministry. I think we forget this a lot. We usually skip to the end when we think about Judas, don't we? When you bring up Judas, all, all we think of is the betrayal and then maybe his death. But instead, I think we need to take some time to remember the things that he was a part of. Because it wasn't like he only showed up at the very end just to betray Jesus. He walked with him through his entire ministry. 
Matthew 10, 5 through 8 says, These 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. So this comes just after the list that Matthew gives of the 12. Judas was involved in that list of the 12. Judas was sent out to towns in Israel to go and proclaim the kingdom of heaven is at hand, calling people to repent of their sins, healing the sick, casting out demons, and proclaiming Jesus Christ. Judas did that. Is that difficult for anybody in here? It's hard for me. It's hard to think about the fact that this Judas that we know that he's the betrayer was also a part of the whole ministry of Christ. John 13, one through 20 says, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. And he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around them. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what am I doing? What I'm doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. So Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet but is completely clean. And you're clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That's why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right for I am, for so I am. If I then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash the feet of one another. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. You know these things. Blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking to all of you. I know of whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Who was sitting at the table when Jesus was washing feet? Judas Iscariot. Jesus already knew that he was going to be betrayed by this very man, that the reason that, or the, the, Part of the, the, the path for him to go to be captured, tortured, and murdered was because of the betrayal of Judas Iscariot. 
And even knowing that, he kneels at his feet, at Judas's feet, removes his sandals, and washes his feet. Now, you guys remember this. This is the lowliest, dirtiest, grossest job you could have had. Your lowest paid servant would have been the one that had to wash people's feet because their feet were disgusting. And here's Jesus, God from heaven, takes off his outer clothing and undignifies himself before his disciples, kneels and washes the feet of the one who would betray him. Let's move to verses 18 through 19. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his, of his wickedness. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. Now there's a struggle that a lot of people have when we read this, uh, this part of Acts because it differs from something we find in Matthew 27, 3 through 5. When, uh, then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed. He went and, ha- he went and hanged himself. This is not a conflicting account. It's two different perspectives that are focusing on two different points, which give us a fuller picture. But let's walk through this a little bit. So in Matthew, it says that he changed his mind. That is the changing of one's manner of thinking due to recognition of wrong. I think a question here that a lot of people have asked, and I don't know that we get a a definitive answer to it. I think it's supposed to be that way. This isn't the word for repent. That, That word is very close to it, but is not exactly the same. But did Judas simply regret and have guilt and shame over recognition of doing something horribly wrong? Or did he repent? We aren't given that answer definitively, but we do know he never professes belief in Christ or surrenders, at least not inside of the word that we're given. Many of us look at that and say, good, he doesn't deserve it. How should we feel about Judas's probable destination. It should break our hearts. He said he sinned. That means to act contrary to the will and law of God. Judas admits sin. He said he betrayed innocent blood. Does he then accept Jesus' claim to be the Christ or does he just feel bad in the role of murder? Again, it doesn't give us any answers that would say Judas accepts Christ. So what I think we're seeing here is a man who realizes horrible wrong. Matthew 27, 6 through 10. But the chief priest taking out the pieces of silver said, it is not lawful to put them into the treasury since it is blood money. So they took counsel and they bought, uh, they bought with them the potter's field, that field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what, was, what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah saying, and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him on, on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field 
as the Lord directed me. So again, that was the, prof- the prophecy we read. So with these two accounts, how did Judas die? Well, specifically, he took his own life. I want to pause here just for a moment and say something that I think the church needs to hear across the world. I think the church has failed people regularly who are dealing with mental illness, who are dealing with deep depression, who are dealing with crippling anxiety because we treat it like it's something that you should be ashamed of and never speak about. I'm certain there are people in this room that are struggling immensely with areas here. And you feel like you can tell no one because of the shame you might get from them. Or maybe you have tried to speak about it and only gotten answers like pray more. Or just trust God to make you feel better. And we have ignored a a plague of people who are suffering. Most of you guys know this. My own father-in-law lost a battle with mental illness. I, from a a certain point on, have have struggled with uh, horrible anxiety for uh, many years. And I just want you to hear this. You're not alone. It's not hopeless. And you are loved. And if you need to talk, even if no one else wants to hear it, I promise I do. Because no one should suffer through things like feeling like there's no hope when there is. And the answer to that might be far more complex. I promise you I'm no professional counselor, but I've not met anybody yet who doesn't need one. And that includes everybody in this room. So Judas took his own life. He probably hanged himself. Or probably as he hanged himself, the, branch, the rope or the branch broke and his body fell and burst open or the word for uh, fell headlong also can mean he was, his body distended which means as he hung there his body swelled and just burst open. So when did this happen? Because in the account again we see that he bought this field. This would have been after the field was bought. So how was the field bought if, uh, if we see that here the 30 pieces of silver were given back to the priest and the priest bought the field and uh, then we see in Acts it talks about Judas's buying of the field as far back as Augustine which would have been about 400 AD the history shows that the field was bought in the name of Judas by the chief priests so what they did they took that the money and when they went to buy this field to be a burial ground they didn't want it to be bought by the priest they didn't want the church the temple's name put on it because they didn't want to sell themselves saying yes we're the part of the reason why this man had this tragic ending to his life so they went and said hi Judas Iscariot wanted us to buy this field for him and they bought it in his name and they bought it and then Judas went to this field and that's where his death came We continue in Acts and it says, and it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. So this field becomes a cemetery, which is good for only one thing, putting other dead bodies in. 
No one could live there. No one could move there. No, business could, no businesses could be pulled up because this was going to be nothing but a place for death. So in this story, what does this mean? What happened to Judas? I think one question we have to ask and deal with is if this was prophesied about centuries before, how is Judas responsible for his actions? I think we have to deal with tension here. God's sovereignty does not acquit our responsibility because Judas and we choose sin, right? No one chose my sin for me. I chose it. So even though the prophecies were there that this was going to happen, Judas willingly chose to do the things he was doing. If that's true, then we have no room to withhold forgiveness from anyone. Oh, I've, I skipped a part. I believe at least that we must say that Jesus desired Judas's redemption as much as anyone else's. And that he deserved redemption just as much as you or I do. We can claim no less sin than Judas. So the title of this had been loving Judas. I actually wish I would have changed it now to I am Judas. Here's why. I think we are very quick to take the part of identifying ourselves with Peter, right? Oh, I'm just strong-willed. Yeah, I might cut somebody's ear off. Or we like to identify ourselves with John. Oh, I'm the one that Jesus just would have loved. Maybe even just doubting Thomas. I, I could struggle with belief, but then I could see it. I don't think many of us read about the apostles and say, man, I identify with Judas. But how many times have you chosen other things over Christ? Who in here can say my sin is less than his? Who in here can say I deserved salvation more than Judas did? None of us. And if that's true, we have no room to withhold forgiveness for any, from anyone. If Jesus desired Judas's redemption, whether he accepted it or not, how can we dare deny that desire from anyone? There is nothing that denies Christ more in a Christian's life than unforgiveness. Because what is the thing that identifies Christ the most in his acts on earth? The forgiveness of sin that was not earned. This should also ignite a fire in us for the mission of Christ. He came to save the lost, even the very lost, like me. Because I can promise you this, from the story that I've read of Judas, I still have more sin in my life that I see than I see in his. You know why? I know my thoughts. I know my heart. I know the desires that I've had. And I know the things that I've done. And I can list you thousands more sins of my own than I can see written about Judas's. So instead of being self-righteous and looking at him and saying, good, he got what he deserved, we should be brokenhearted saying, I was him too. And yet Christ saved me. You just bow your heads and close your eyes with me. I have a couple questions just for us to think through as we move into a time of invitation. My first one is this. 
Have you been withholding forgiveness from, from someone? Is there anyone you need to forgive this morning? Somebody that you thought wasn't worth it, didn't deserve it, doesn't earn it. Maybe they don't. But if we're following the example of Christ who forgave the people hanging him on the cross, who do we have the right to withhold forgiveness from? Maybe for some of you, you need to, you need to forgive yourself. Second of all, who have you not considered that needs to know the message of Christ? Who are the people in your life that you think, it's not even worth my time? What are you going to do about it? If Christ could desire the redemption of all, including somebody like Judas himself, who is there in your life that you have ignored that needs the gospel of Christ? And are you willing to share it with them? Maybe there's some of you in here who are thinking or have thought for a long time, there is no way Christ could save me because I've done too much wrong. And I can promise you this, there is no one who has done so much wrong that Christ's sacrifice can't cover it. He is God who took on the sins of the world by taking on humanity and, and living the perfect life that we could never do. And then dying on the cross, taking all the wrath that God has for sin on himself. If you've been waiting or hesitating or struggling with that, thinking you couldn't deserve it, you can't. But he still offers it freely. And I just ask you, surrender to him this morning. And if you have questions, ask them because I promise you, he can handle your questions. Jesus, I pray you guide us this morning to worship you. Lord, in, in reading Jesus' story, it is heartbreaking to see someone who is so close to you constantly there watching everything who just missed it all in the pursuit of other things in the pursuit of the world or his own design for church or the, or the, or the nation or the kingdom he wanted his own way more than he wanted yours seeing a man that you know falling into such deep depression and a tragic ending to his life Christ, let us see this and be moved to desire to reach others for you. Let us be moved to forgive people even when they don't deserve it. Let us be moved to be open to listening to people who are hurting and feel alone and hopeless. Let us be moved to share your gospel. Because we live in a world full of Judases like us that have betrayed you, that are living in rebellion against you and that you are willing to forgive and save. We love you, Christ. In your name I pray, amen. Please stand and respond however God leads you.